Hi, my name is James Doty. Uh, I'm a neurosurgeon at Stanford and also a neuroscientist, compassion researcher, best-selling author. And today we're going to talk about the science of compassion and how it'll affect your life and everyone around you. Welcome back to another part of this binge-worthy episode. Uh, where we're talking about neuroscience, we're talking about intention. We've so far we've talked about the state of mental health, which we're going to come back to. AI and depression. We've talked about how people might actually prefer to have an AI therapist. Um, we talked about VR, intention, discipline, and meaning, and that was just in part one. Now we're back for part two, and we're going to talk a little bit about here about who James is, uh, how he got to be where he is. And because obviously this is a gentleman with a very lot of us, you know, I mean, he's pretty well up there. Like I said, Stanford, neuroscience, etc. New York Times bestselling author. Um, he is the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. Yeah, just a couple of little accolades under his belt. So let's start by tell us a little bit about who you are as in where you came from because that's that's a fascinating part of the story because very often you and I have talked about this before very often we see people on the surface you know we look at the guy on TV you go oh you know but you know he's an overnight success that took 20 years or we look at the person who oh you know their life is perfect we don't understand there's a backstory that often involves much more than we could have ever possibly imagined so talk to us about, about where you started. I mean, even let's even start in, in the childhood part because I know that that was massively influential. Well, I won't refer to my mother pushing the watermelon out of uh, her belly. By the way, if you wish the watermelon, you have to go back and listen to part one. <laughs> yes, definitely. Or not. Uh, <laughs> or not. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, um, let's see, where were we? Oh, um, so you're right. I, I mean, it, it is sort of interesting how people have a tendency to look at another person, make presumptions about who they are, their background, et cetera. And, uh, and in fact, to be honest with you, on some level, that's the cause of a lot of suffering for people mm -hmm. because they look at someone else and they said, wow, you know, look at them. Everything is perfect. You know, they have money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in fact, it's not perfect in any way, shape or form. And, and some of the most miserable uh, people I know, in fact, are extraordinarily wealthy mm -hmm. uh, and they're very unhappy. Uh, and we should talk about that as well. But for myself, I, um, and where the basis of this book comes from is uh, my father actually uh, was an alcoholic. Uh, he had a lot of uh, challenges in his own life. Uh, my mother, when I was a child, had a stroke, was paralyzed, had a seizure disorder, and was chronically depressed, attempted suicide multiple times. Uh, I had an older brother and sister who uh, had their own challenges. And uh, uh, as a result, I did not have any role models. I did not have finances. Uh, I certainly didn't have mentors. And by the age of 12, I was lost. And I was becoming a very good juvenile delinquent. 
Uh, and it wasn't because I wasn't smart. It's just I had no direction. And uh, at the age of 12, uh, one day after an experience at home, I got on my uh, bicycle and drove as fast as I could and, uh, to get as far away from my house as I could. And I ended up far away from home and uh, at a strip mall. And at the strip mall, uh, there was a magic shop and I had an interest in magic and I went inside. And uh, the person who greeted me, uh, it turned out was the owner's mother and not uh, the owner. And the mother was reading a book and uh, had her glasses on her nose like this and uh, looked up and uh, uh, she knew nothing about magic whatsoever. But what she did know uh, and understand is a people. Mm -hmm. And uh, every once in a while, we'll meet someone who in their interaction with us, greets us with this radiant smile. Um, it embraces you. It makes you feel comfortable. Uh, use the term psychological safety. It, it makes mm -hmm. you feel as if you're protected. And that's the way this person was. The other interesting thing is, you know, when you're 12 years old, especially growing up in poverty, uh, you know, people judge you mm -hmm. uh, and they dismiss you. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this particular case, that was not the situation. You know, she looked at me straight eye to eye. Uh, she asked me questions. I answered back. And uh, after about 20 minutes, uh, she said, you know, you, you seem like a really nice kid. I'm here for another six weeks. Uh, you know, I think if you came in every day and you and I talked for an hour or two, I could help you. And I didn't know exactly what that meant at the time. No, but frankly, I had nothing else to do. You know, my plate was pretty empty. Uh, so uh, what happened is I did show up and she taught me several things. And you have to remember, this was in the late 60s. There was no talk of uh, mindfulness. There was no talk of meditation. There was no talk of neuroplasticity. And, uh, uh, and this is what actually she ended up offering. Uh, when I met with her, which was in the back of this magic shop, and it's interesting right here, I'm 12, she's in her 50s. I'm meeting her for a couple hours in the back of a magic shop, which, you know, nowadays we would all be shocked. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we did meet and she taught me one of the first things, which was that in some ways, and we now use the term uh, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs to describe the type of chronic trauma that children face who come from these types of backgrounds. And as a result, you get post-traumatic stress disorder. You never know what's going to happen to you. And as a result, you can never concentrate because mm -hmm. the environment's always changing. So instead of being able to focus, you're looking around wondering what's going to happen to you. And I certainly uh, was in this position. And so the first thing she taught me was uh, how to breathe and also relax. And I really had never experienced that before. And uh, so once she taught me that and how this breathing exercise, she taught me from that how to attend and be present to someone and to actually listen without all these other distractions. And it immediately had a, a significant effect on everything. Uh, and from there, she taught me an understanding that the negative dialogue that I had in my head was a false narrative. And mm -hmm. it's interesting, <coughs> excuse me, you talk to so many people, 
and almost everyone has this dialogue or this idea of an imposter syndrome. And uh, she made me understand that by the nature of how humans are, we are attuned to negativity because mm -hmm. negativity is what puts us at risk. And one of the byproducts of that is negative statements about ourselves stick to us and positive ones have a tendency to bounce off. So all the statements I was making about, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, et cetera, et cetera, really weren't true. And um, so once she identified that, then she um, taught me techniques of self-affirmation or what we call self-compassion. Mm -hmm. And uh, that changed everything. Because what happened is when you have this negative voice telling you you're not good enough, it has a tendency to change how you look at the world. Of course. Yeah. And so once I changed that narrative and realized that many people were suffering, uh, it started changing everything else. And what I tell people is one of the reasons that I've been able to succeed is because when I changed how I looked at the world, the world changed how it looked at me. Yeah. And as a result, uh, that world was much kinder. Uh, it was much more gentler because you see, if you're sitting there with antagonism, hate, anger, uh, fear, you know, people sense that, you know, we talked about Paul Ekman earlier. <coughs> People have an intuitive ability to interpret an individual's facial expressions, their body habitus, even their smells, and react accordingly. So if you're sitting there with this immense anger and frustration at the world because it wasn't quote unquote fair to you, then people respond to that. And frankly, they don't want to hang out with you. Mm -hmm. uh, the other side of it was that the anger and hostility I had towards my parents about their own failings, uh, I realized that they did not themselves have the tool set necessary to change their own lives. And they were struggling. And, <clears throat> you know, in the case of my father, it was, you know, his pain was alleviated with alcohol. My mother, uh, she would take pills or she would get so overwhelmed that then she would try to commit suicide. And uh, it wasn't because these were bad people, they just had limited tools. And so when I changed that view of the world, uh, it allowed me to actually uh, develop in a much more positive way. And frankly, see that, you know, we're talking about intention and manifesting things. It made me see that I had that possibility to change how I saw the world. And, you know, I tell people that when you have this negativity, what you're doing is you're taking these bricks and you're building a prison for yourself. Mm -hmm. And as the walls get higher, it gets darker and you see less and less. And so what she taught me was essentially to have the key to open the door to that prison and to walk out because every one of us has extraordinary potential to do amazing things. We just get blocked by these bricks we're building, telling us we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, it's not possible. 
So she gave me the tools to escape and manifest my own uh, potential. And it's been really quite extraordinary since then, because really nothing is uh, impossible. So, it's, you know, you talked about a lot of interesting things there, because I, I don't know what, what you, you didn't say, what happened with your brother and sister, but essentially not absolutely but essentially because there is subjective change but essentially they grew up in the same environment as you did they go on to embrace any of this or do you think that 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 woman changed the very direction of your life that lady in the magic shop well I, she certainly changed my life you know I, I had an older brother who was a year and a half older and uh <coughs> his challenge is he was gay uh, and although he was very bright, uh, at that time, uh, him being gay, you know, put a profound uh, barrier on a variety of things for him. Sure. Plus, of course, you know, my father was very traditional and uh, gay wasn't uh, going to go down well. Gay did not go down well. Uh, so they were separated. You know, my mother was already overwhelmed. Uh, so that wasn't helpful. I had a sister, a stepsister who was nine years older, mm. and she lived with us for a period, but probably around uh, my age, uh, uh, 11 or 12, she left mm. because she was uh, miserable and unhappy. And she dropped out of high school and ended up marrying a fellow dropout who ended up in the army. And that led the direction of her own life where uh, she did not get, uh, an education, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, led a, I would say middle class, but a lower middle class life. And I, I don't think she was unhappy. I'm not sure if she was really totally happy though. It's, it's just interesting, James, because one of the things that comes up as conversations, I'm, I'm sure you bang into it all the time too, is this idea of you know, fate and luck uh, and and taking responsibility for one's own life. Um, and, you know, it seems like, obviously you were a highly intelligent kid um, who lived in trauma and as a result developed, you know, it's one of the things I talk a lot about in my work when I work with, with, with leaders and I'll say, uh, you know, they'll say I'm ADHD. And I'll say, are you? And they say, oh, yeah, I've been diagnosed. And I said, well, so am I. Just so you know, I was diagnosed as well. Uh, ADHD, I was also diagnosed um, as dyslexic. I don't know anybody who's read more books than I have. I'm sure there are many people, but I don't know them. Um, and I can be incredibly focused, insanely focused. So am I ADHD and am I dyslexic? And the answer is yes. But but you have to take a deeper look and my ADHD was actually hypervigilance and people go, well, what's that? Well, what that is, is when you grow up in an environment that's unsafe, you're always looking for the f danger. Yes, exactly. I said, when, when I, when my mom put the key in the door, you could have said I was psychic because when she put the key in the door, I knew exactly what mood to be in. Because if I was in a good mood and she was in a downer, that was not going to work. 
And if I was in a downer and she was in a good mood, that was not going to work. I had to always come in at her level, which made me masterful. It's given me great gifts. It's taught me how to have rapport, how to connect with people and how to pay attention to things that, you know, when I read Eckham and stuff originally, I was like, yeah, it was like, yeah. Because <laughs> I knew I was doing that stuff. I just didn't know how I was doing it. Um, so I think that all these um, curses contain the blessings, but very often, not always, but I, maybe always, I don't know, but very often it seems like there needs to be a catalyst. There needs to be uh, uh, a Yoda. There needs to, you know, there needs to be a, a, a momentary Buddha who, you know, this lady was for you. She was your Yoda of the moment who showed up for you and went, oh, how about you go on this path instead? Do you think, the reason I'm asking is, do you think if your sister or your brother would have wandered into that magic store, do you think it might have made a difference? Uh, well, I think whether it's a magic store or some other environment where there's a mentor or a single person who cares for you, uh, yeah, I think it can have a huge, huge impact. Uh, 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 so, no, I don't think there's any question. Now, some people would argue, uh, and I think this is where it gets to be challenging, is they'll say, well, you already had these gifts, and uh, it didn't matter what happened to you, you would end up in the same spot no matter what. I don't necessarily believe that, uh, but, uh, you know, there is a subset of people who would say that. You know, I think, again, your hypervigilance or, uh, you know, this is PTSD, right? You yep. never know what's going to happen to you. And so, uh, you know, you have to be prepared. Of course, the bad part of that is unless you develop the tools to understand why you are that way and how, yes, there are advantages to that, but there are certain disadvantages and what are they and how do you overcome them, then you're sort of stuck, right? And I think it's how do you get unstuck uh, from these types of uh, uh, situations? Yeah, and I think that um, as much, you know, as much as they are a curse at the time, and I said, you know, I've turned them into, I've turned them into gifts, um, I can't, I could not have done that without the awareness that I developed through uh, being in psychotherapy by doing work, by doing um, all the, all the training that I did around my own awareness and, you know, meditation and Buddhism and the Tao and Vedanta and Kabbalistic uh, studies, all those things helped me to go, oh, I can use this in a positive way. But I, I don't think for most people there's even the, the consideration. There's no understanding that, oh, this could have a positive outlet. And for, so for me, it becomes a tool. So I walked down a street. I remember walking down the street with a mate of mine, and we were out on a Saturday night. I was in my early 30s, and we were walking in the back streets of Seattle. You know, I had long hair, long black hair, um, a black nice overcoat on. I'm dressed in a black suit, and my mate's with me. You know, I look like a mafia right? yeah. walking down this area. Um, and we turn, and when we just turn, as we turn, we end up in this alleyway where there's oil drums with fire in them, you know, and, and you know, a lot of people who looked a bit sus. 
you know, <clears throat> and my mate starts to, you know, starts to get a bit tweaky. You know, and he's like, are we going to be okay? I said, we're going to be great. And go, I go, just follow me and do exactly what I do. And I walked through and because I was born in abject poverty, I was born around crime and violence and addiction and all the things you're talking about. So I just walked through there. I have hypervigilance. I can pay attention. And everybody I look at, I just went, I gave them, as I used to say, as I say to my black friends, I gave them the black nod. Right? Yeah. No, everybody acknowledged me back and there was no problem because I don't put that out there. But that's something I learned from that environment. I am not, I mean, I'm trained as a fighter. I learned to fight, but I'm not a fighter, not by any stroke of the imagination. But that vibe you can put out, you learn how to do that. It's part of the skill sets you learn from those environments that I don't know that the, the kid who had, that I went to high school with, who was driven to school in a, in a Rolls Royce, I don't right. think he got those same skills. No, I, I think that's true. And, and I think the other interesting thing that people forget is, you know, it's great when things work out for you and you get some accolade and people tell you how great you are. And, uh, but those aren't where you learn about life and who you are. <laughs> it's the down parts where you've been in pain, you've suffered, you uh, have to then think about that. And while at the moment it's very painful, but if you look at it from a distance of time, you understand that that experience in and of itself was a wonderful gift to you. And I think that's also what a lot of people uh, don't understand. You know, an event like that occurs and instead of learning from it, they wallow in it mm -hmm. and uh, they don't know how to overcome it versus, you know, going back and looking at it and go, oh, wow, I learned so much from that. I learned X, Y, Z. I learned this about myself. I learned I had this capability. And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, this concept of equanimity, which is this, uh, uh, even this a temperament whether it's good or whether it's bad and understanding both have their pluses uh, and minuses and not to get lost in either. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's really fascinating. I have, I, I, my philosophy that I work with is, you know, we do dragon leadership and, and we say dragons are born in fire. All dragons are born in fire. So the leaders I work with, are the leaders who have come to the point of realizing that they got burned maybe pretty bad in their childhood or at some point and they're carrying around those burns and what we talk about is turning that fire inwardly to propel them and lead from the heart and the fire together um, because dragons carry dragons have a, a trans translucent scale at the front in which you can see the heartbeat so they lead with heart and with fire and they're massive and they're powerful and they make a difference and dragons in mythology protect what is valuable so that you know that's why it's that's why it's dragon philosophy and and so it's this understanding though that uh, one of our tenants is that you are either defined or you are refined by your history and and most people are victim to it because they're refined by it, because they're defined by it but dragons are refined by it. But to be refined by it means that the, you must be pushed against the wheel of life and it will knock the crap out of you 
to reveal what's the diamond that's underneath, the magnificence that's underneath. But I think that that takes something very different. I want to hear from you what you think, because, you know, again, neurologically, everything's saying, don't go there. It's terrifying. It's frightening. And they can never sort of step into embracing, you know, it's much safer to stay pissed off at mom and dad or the environment or whatever it is than it is to step into, first of all, self-compassion before anybody else, but self-compassion and say, okay, you know, what if I saw myself differently? What's, what's your thoughts on that, on that, you know, that diamond, the fire stuff and, and the willingness to embrace that courage and is it courage or do you think it's something else well I, you know i think the analogies are are wonderful uh you know uh i think that uh, there are incredible leaders who have grown up in these types of environments and they the problem many times though is that the techniques that have gotten them to where they're at, they try to repeat. And while they can be very positive and effective in the short term, they're more challenging in the long term because they're suffering with it. And, mm -hmm. and in some ways, I think that um, people think that because they had to go through it, they need to make others go through it. You know, and this is what happens like in what I do, neurosurgery, you know, in a neurosurgery residency, you're treated like shit. Therefore you have a tendency to treat other people like shit. Right. And while that may have created you on some level and made you successful, there's a heavy baggage you carry with that. And I think that uh, when you realize that you can have the same positivity while not turning someone into a jerk or being afraid, uh, but you can actually give them the gift of, uh, of uh, awareness and understanding of this is what you have to do, but you always have to imbue it with kindness and compassion. I think that's uh, you know really the challenge. But to get there, of course, as you point out, uh, you have to have understood your own path, how it's negatively and positively affected you, and then be kind to yourself. And once you're kind to yourself and you change your negativity to one of positivity and self-affirmation, then it's at that point that you can give that uh, gift to other people, I think. So, so let's, and I want to open this up for the, as we go towards the end of the second part, but I really want to open this idea up of self-compassion because again, it's one of those things that is very nebulous. You know, a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't really get that, you know, and, and you know, and I very clearly in my stuff to show the distinction between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. I see those things as three very different things. And actually my understanding of compassion came from a teaching of the Dalai Lama's. Um, but I want to hear your sort of understanding of those three. And I really want to hear your guidance to us because a lot of people, I just, I don't think they, I mean, you bring it up to them and it's just beyond them. 
How yeah. do I get to self-compassion? So sure. let's walk us through a bit of that. Well, you know, if you look at these different terms used, you, you can also include pity in there. You know, pity yeah. is you're looking down on another feeling sorry for their suffering, but it's from a position of superiority. And, you know, you're sort of helping them, but it's because you're superior. Yeah. Sympathy, sympathy is more of a, um, you're not in their position, so you're not feeling it. You're cognitively viewing it. You feel bad about it. And there's not necessarily even a driver to make you change it. You just feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Empathy is, uh, and there are some debates about this, uh, but empathy is typically thought of as taking on the emotion of another. It's mm -hmm. not, it can be empathic joy, actually. It's not uh, bad or good, but it's simply being able to take on that emotional state. But there's no driver to do anything beyond that. And of course, compassion very much relates to suffering and a motivational uh, desire to alleviate that suffering. So, you know, those are the differentiations. And then, of course, you have kindness, which is a uh, uh, simply doing an act towards another with it has nothing to do with suffering. You're just being nice. And the reality is, uh, I believe that if you're nice in general, usually get niceness back. That's just been my own uh, experience. You know, I'll tell you a very quick story. Uh, I was uh, leaving a position running a, uh, uh, a neuroscience center actually in Mississippi uh, years ago. And I had developed it from scratch, took it from nothing to, you know, having 20, 30 people. And there was a guy who wanted the job. You know, I requested people to apply. So this guy came from another state and uh, we walked into the hospital and the lady at the front of the hospital greets me. She comes up to me. She says, so sorry to hear you're leaving Dr. Doug. Can I give you a hug? Da, 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 da. And I had operated on her husband, very sweet lady, went to the cafeteria. The woman at the cafeteria said, oh, it's so good to see you. I saved you this croissant here for you. Can I get you anything? Uh, she brings it over to the table. We go to the uh, <laughs> uh, 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 radiology. We're touring radiology. One of the techs comes up to me. She goes, oh, Dr. Lloyd, thank you so much, uh, you know, for the gift for the baby. You know, it's perfect, blah, 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 blah. We go to the intensive care unit. Nurse comes up to me, gives me a hug, says, you know, wow, uh, uh, you know, thank you uh, for taking care of my mother. Uh, you know, you're special, blah, 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 blah. So we finish this tour and we end up in my office and I sit down. I said, well, what do you think of the place? He goes, what the fuck was that? I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he goes, all this hug shit and people thanking you. And, and, and I said, well, you know, my experience has been when you're kind, you're thoughtful, you're compassionate, people will bend over backwards to help you. They'll work far beyond what they're paid for. They'll go out of their way and, you know, that's how you get things done. And I said, what is your philosophy on this? And he said, well, you know, I'm in charge and I say shit and they say where and how much. And I said, well, look how effective that is. You don't have a job and you're coming here to look at a job. And, and it shows you this completely different 
philosophical perspectives of how uh, you motivate people, inspire people, get along, function, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, so many leaders operate out of command and control, but the thing I'm really wanting to have our listeners grasp here is this, I, how do we teach ourselves to have compassion for ourselves? Because people are brutally hard on themselves. I know I was, I was, I was abusive inside of my own head for many, many, many years. I mean, stuff that doesn't even cross my mind anymore. Sure. It's hard for me to conjure up, but I know I lived in that hell. Sure. Well, I think there are a couple parts. One is this idea of growing up with this, uh, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I shouldn't have this job. Everybody's going to find out about me. And uh, I think, of course, as I said earlier, these are, are false narratives. And this type of thinking prevents you from really reaching your potential mm -hmm. and being the best person you can be. <clears throat> I think the other aspect about it is that uh, there's a lot of shame in people. And, uh, you know, shame is a horrible burden to bear. Uh, you know, shame is when you think, uh, you know, you've done these horrible things and uh, people are going to judge you if they really know you. Uh, and, uh, and this is the aspect of your shadow, you know. Yeah. Uh, people have a tendency to push the shadow, try to push it in a box to make it go away. And the problem with that is whenever you're weak, like something's happened to you, you're tired, et cetera, et cetera, it has a tendency to pop out and suddenly it's there and now you're having to stuff it in there and hide it and and then people start questioning you. And I think uh, you first of all have to actually become friends with your shadow. And what I mean by that is not say, well, it's great you're this horrible thing that I'm ashamed of, but it's to say, listen, you're there, you're there for a reason. Uh, I grew up a certain way and it created X, Y, and Z. And I accept you for what you are. You're not gonna control my life, but I'm not gonna hide you necessarily either. And that way you're not always fighting this demon that you're trying to push away. So I think uh, accepting yourself as who you are, and that includes the shadow part of you, and because the shadow is also the thing that tells you in many ways, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, et cetera. And so uh, I think that's uh, a very important aspect. And so when you can see this, you can sit with this. And what I have found interesting is because I speak to a lot of groups of people is that, you know, I'll get up in front of people and my voice will crack, I'll have tears. And uh, it's interesting because until I do that, no one's uh, cried or doing anything. As soon as I do that, the whole room breaks down because that's what they want, this authentic connection with another human being. And in my entire experience, I've never had anyone say, well, I've had one person, I'll tell you about that. But in general, no one has ever said, wow, you're weak and you're a wimp and, you know, I feel sorry for you. They go, gosh, you know, you look like you're suffering. I, I so wanted to hold you. The nature of our humanity is we want to care for people who show their emotions, show who they really are. And that is showing uh, this aspect of your own uh, 
shadow, if you will, you know, and not be ashamed of that. I did give a talk one time where I had this happen and this woman comes up to me and she said, you know, I felt so sorry for you up there. I was watching you, your voice cracked. I saw these tears. You know, I know you must have felt horrible, all these people judging you about that. And she said, I'm a hypnotherapist and a psychiatrist. And, you know, if you come with me and spend three days with me or three sessions with me, I can get rid of that. And I looked at her and I started laughing. I go, why would I ever want to get rid of that when on many levels that's one of the greatest gifts exactly. is to be able to show that to people and not be afraid of it. <clears throat> so it's interesting, though, how people interpret that. And this, actually, I felt sorry for this woman. She is so clueless to uh, have this lack of awareness about that. And obviously, she's a very controlled type of person. And to think that that level of control gets you something versus uh, being much more open, authentic. Uh, so, Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because, as I said, I think that... Um... I think that internally we run a narrative that the, and I think it's socially conditioned into us that vulnerability, therefore compassion is a weakness. Um, and biologically, uh, humanity's level, um, it is an incredible strength. Um, I want, when we come back, I'm going to take a break now, but when we come back, I want to talk about, um, really the neuroscience of compassion, why it's important, uh, uh, and what can happen for us as human beings um, in the context of why we maybe need to put a lot more compassion into the world. And, and I really want to look a little bit more also at the your view of you know because you you are you're around a lot of spiritual leaders so i want to look at your view of um the geopolitics of playing in a world where compassion seems to be greatly lacking so we'll be back in a in a few minutes i hope that you'll stay with us for this binge worthy episode with my amazing guest dr james dotty and he is the author of into the magic shop a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. And we'll be back in just a moment. So stay curious, my friend. Stay curious. 